Chapter Twenty One of The Millionaire Baby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter Twenty One. Providence. Had I suspected this? Had all my efforts for the last half hour been for the purpose of entrapping her into some such avowal? I do not know. My own feelings at the time are a mystery to me. I blundered on, with a blow here and a blow there, till I hit this woman in a vital spot, and achieved the above-mentioned results. I was not happy when I reached it. I felt no elation, scarcely any relief. It all seemed so impossible. She marked the signs of incredulity in my face, and spoke up quickly, almost sharply. "'You do not believe me. I will prove the truth of what I say. Just wait, wait.' And, running to a closet, she pulled out a drawer. Where was her weakness now? And brought from it a pair of soiled white slippers. If the house had been ransacked, she proceeded pantingly, these would have told their own tale. I was shocked when I saw their condition, and kept my guests waiting till I changed them. Oh, they will fit the footprints. Her smile was ghastly. Softly she set the shoes down. Mrs. Carew helped me. She went for the child at night. Oh, we are in a terrible strait, we two, unless you will stand by us like a friend. And you will do that, won't you, Mr. Trevitt? No one else knows what I have just confessed, not even Dr. Poole, though he suspects me in ways I never dreamed of. Money shall not stand in the way. I have a fortune of my own now. Nothing shall stand in the way if you will have pity on Mrs. Carew and myself and help us to preserve our secret. Madam, what secret? I pray you to make me acquainted with the whole matter in all its details before you ask my assistance. Then do you not know it? Not altogether, and I must know it altogether. First, what became of the child? She is safe and happy. You have seen her. You mentioned doing so just now. Harry? Harry! I rose before her in intense excitement. What a plot! I stood aghast at its daring and at the success it so nearly met with. I've had moments of suspicion, I admitted, after a short examination of this beautiful woman's face, for the marks of strength which her part in this plot seemed to call for. But they all vanished before Mrs. Carew's seemingly open manner, and the perfect boyishness of the child. Is she an actress too, Gwendolen? Not when she plays boyish games like horse and Indian. She is only acting out her nature. She has no girl tastes. She is all boy, and it was by means of these instincts that Mrs. Carew won her. She promised her that if she would leave her home and go with her to Europe, she would cut her hair and call her Harry, and dress her so that everyone would think her a boy. And she promised her something else, that she should go to her father. Gwendolen idolizes Mr. Ocumpaugh. But I know... You wonder why, if I loved my husband, I should send away the one cherished object of his life. It is because our love was threatened by this very object. I saw nothing but death and chaos before me if I kept her. My husband adores that child, but he hates and despises a falsehood, 
and my secret was threatened by the one man who knows it, your Dr. Poole. My accomplice once, he declared himself ready to become my accuser, if the child remained under the Ocumpa roof one day after the date he fixed for her removal. Ah, I ejaculated with sudden comprehension of the full meaning of the scrawls I had seen in so many parts of the grounds. And by what right did he demand this? What excuse did he give you? His wish for money, immense money, old miser that he is? No, for money I could have given him. His motive is a less tangible one. He has scruples, he says, religious scruples following a change of heart. Oh, he was a cruel man to meet, determined, inexorable. I could not move or influence him. The proffer of money only hurt my cause. A fraud had been perpetrated, he said, and Mr. Ocumpaugh must know it. Would I confess the truth to him myself? No. Then he would do so for me, and bring proofs to substantiate his statements. I thought all was lost, my husband's confidence, his love, his pleasure even in the child, for it was his own blood that he loved in her, and her connection with his family, of whose prestige he has an exaggerated idea. Made desperate by the thought, I faced this cruel doctor. It was in his office. He had presumed upon that old secret linking us together to summon me there, and told him solemnly that rather than do this, I would kill myself. And he almost bade me kill, but refrained when the word had half left his lips, and changed it to a demand for the child's immediate removal from the benefits it enjoyed under false pretenses. And from this Mrs. Ocumpaugh went on to relate how he had told her that Gwendolen had inherited fortunes because she was believed to be an Ocumpaugh, that not being an Ocumpaugh she must never handle those fortunes, winding up with some language as this, Manage it how you will, only relieve me from the oppression of feeling myself a party to the grossest of deceptions. Cannot the child run away and be lost? I am willing to aid you in that, even to paying for her bringing up in some decent, respectable way, such as would probably have been her lot, if you had not interfered to place her in the way of millions. It was a mad thought, half meant and apparently wholly impossible to carry out, without raising suspicions as damaging as confession itself. But it took an immediate hold upon the miserable woman he addressed, though she gave little evidence of it, for he proceeded to add in a harsh tone, That or immediate confession to your husband, with me by your side to substantiate your story. No slippery woman's tricks will go down with me. Fix the date here and now, and I promise to stand back and await the result in total silence. Dally with it by so much as an hour, and I am at your gates with a story that all must hear. Is it a matter of wonder that the stricken woman, without counsel and prohibited from the very nature of her secret from seeking counsel, uttered the first one that came to mind and went home to brood over her position? and plan how she could satisfy his demands with the least cost to herself, her husband, and the child. Mr. Ocumpaugh was in Europe, 
This was her one point of comfort. What was done could be done in his absence, and this fact greatly minimized any risk she was likely to incur. When he returned he would find the house in mourning, for she had already decided within herself that only by apparent death could this child be safely robbed of her endowments as an Ocumpa and an heiress. He would grieve, but his grief would lack the sting of shame, and so in course of time would soften into a lovely memory of one who had been as the living sunshine to him, and, like the sunshine, brief in its shining. Thus, and thus only, could she show her consideration for him. For herself no consideration was possible. It must always be her fate to know the child alive, yet absolutely removed from her. This was a sorrow capable of no alleviation, for Gwendolen was passionately dear to her, all the dearer, perhaps, because the mother-thirst had never been satisfied, because she had held the cup in hand, but had never been allowed to drink. The child's future, how to rob her of all she possessed, yet secure her happiness and the prospect of an honorable estate. Ah, there was the difficulty, and one she quite failed to solve, till, in a paroxysm of terror and despair, after five sleepless nights, she took Mrs. Carew into her confidence and implored her aid. The free, resourceful, cheerful nature of the broader-minded woman saw through the difficulty at once. "'Give her to me,' she cried. "'I love little children passionately, and have always grieved over my childless condition. I will take Gwendolen, raise her, and fill her little heart so full of love. She will never miss the magnificence she had been brought to look upon as her birthright.' only I shall have to leave this vicinity, perhaps the country. And would you be willing, asked the poor mother, mother by right of many years of service, if not of blood. The answer broke her heart, though it was only a smile, but such a smile, confident, joyous, triumphant, the smile of a woman who had got her heart's wish, while she, she must henceforth live childless. So that was settled, but not the necessary ways and means of accomplishment. Those came only with time. The two women had always been friends, so their frequent meetings in the green boudoir did not waken a suspicion. A sudden trip to Europe was decided on by Mrs. Carew, and by degrees the whole plot was perfected. In her eyes it looked feasible enough, and they both anticipated complete success. Having decided that the scheme, as planned by them, could be best carried out in the confusion of a great entertainment, cards were sent out for the 16th, the date agreed upon by the doctor's office, as the one in which should see a complete change in Gwendolen's prospects. It was also settled that on that same day Mrs. Carew should bring home from a certain small village in Connecticut her nephew, who had lately been left an orphan. There was no deception about this nephew. Mrs. Carew had for some time supplied his needs, and paid for his board in the farmhouse where he had been left, and, in the emergency which had just come up, she took care to publish to all her friends that she was going to bring him home and take him with her to Europe. 
Further, a market man and woman, with whom Mrs. Carew had had dealings for years, were persuaded to call at her house, shortly after three that afternoon, to take this nephew of hers by a circuitous and prolonged ride through the country to an institution in which she had had him entered under an assumed name. All this in one day. Meanwhile, Mrs. Carew undertook to open with her own hands a passage from the cellar of the bungalow into the long-closed room behind the partition. This was to ensure a safe retreat for the child during the first search, that by no possibility could anything be found to contradict the testimony of the little shoe which Mrs. Ocumpa proposed presenting to all eyes as found on the slope leading to the great burial-place, the river. Otherwise the child might have been passed over to Mrs. Carew at once. All this being decided upon, each waited to perform the part assigned to her. Mrs. Carew, in the fever of delight, for she was passionately devoted to Gwendolen, and experienced nothing but rapture at the prospect of having this charming child all to herself. Mrs. Ocumpa, whose only recompense would be freedom from the threatening exposure, which would cost her the only thing she prized, her husband's love, in a condition of cold dread, relieved only by the burning sense of the necessity of impressing upon the whole world, and especially upon Mr. Ocumpa, an absolute belief in the child's death. This was her first care. To this her mind clung with an agony of purpose, which was the fittest preparation possible for the real display of feeling when the time came. But she forgot one thing, they both forgot one thing, that chance or providence might ordain that witness should be on the road below Homewood to prove that the child did not cross the track at the time of her disappearance. To them it seemed enough to plead the child's love for the water, her desire to be allowed to fish, the opportunity given her to escape, and, and the little shoes. Such short-sightedness in face of a great peril could be pardoned Mrs. Ocumpa on the verge of delirium under her cold exterior, but Mrs. Carew should have taken this possibility into account, and would have done so, probably, had she not been completely absorbed in the part she would be called upon to play when the exchange of children should be made and Gwendolen be entrusted to her charge within a dozen rods of her own home. This she could dwell on with the whole force of her mind. This she could view in all its relations, and make such a study of it, as to provide herself against all contingencies. But the obvious danger of a gang of men being placed just where they could serve as witness, in contradiction of the one fact upon which the whole plot was based, never even struck her imagination. The nursery governess, whose heart was divided between her duty to the child and her strong love of music, was chosen as their unconscious accomplice in this fraud. As the time for the great musicale approached, she was bidden to amuse Gwendolen in the bungalow, with the understanding that if the child fell asleep, she might lay her on the divan, and so far leave her as to take her place on the bench outside, where the notes of the solo singers could reach her. That Gwendolen would fall asleep, and fall asleep soon, the wretched mother well knew, for she had given her a safe but potent sleeping draught, 
which could not fail to ensure a twelve hours undisturbed slumber to so healthy a child. The fact that the little one had shrunk more than ever from her attentions that morning both hurt and encouraged her. Certainly it would make it easier for Mrs. Carew to influence Gwendolen. In her own mind, filled with terrible images of her husband's grief and her long prospective dissimulation, one picture rose in brilliant contrast to the dark one embodying her own miserable future and that of the soon-to-be bereaved father. It was that of the perfect joy of the hungry-hearted child in the arms of the woman she loved best. It brought her cheer. It brought her anguish. It was a salve to her conscience and a mortal thrust in an already festering wound. She shut it from her eyes as much as possible, and so the hour came. We know the results, how far the scheme succeeded and whence its great failure arose. Gwendolen fell asleep almost immediately on reaching the bungalow, and Mrs. Graham, dreaming no harm and having the most perfect confidence in Mrs. Ocumpaugh, took advantage of the permission she had received, and slipped outside to sit on the bench and listen to the music. Presently Mrs. Ocumpaugh appeared, saying that she had left her guests for a moment just to take a look at Gwendolen and see if all were well with her. As she needed no attendance, Miss Graham might stay where she was, and Miss Graham did, taking a pleasure in the music, which was the finest she had ever heard. Meanwhile, Mrs. Ocumpaugh entered the bungalow, and, untying the child's shoes as she had frequently done before, when she found her asleep, she lifted her and carried her just as she was down the trap, the door of which she had previously raised. The darkness lurking in such places, a darkness which had rendered it so impenetrable by midnight, was relieved to some extent in daylight by means of a little grated opening in the wall under the beams, so that her chief difficulty lay in holding up her long dress and sustaining the heavy child at the same time. But the exigency of the moment, and her apprehension lest Miss Graham should re-enter the bungalow before she could finish her task and escape, gave great precision to her movements, and in an incredible short space of time she had reached those musty precincts, which, if they should not prove the death of the child, would safely shelter her from every one's eye till the first excitement of her loss was over, and the conviction of her death by drowning become a settled fact in every mind. Mrs. Ocumpaugh's return was a flight. She had brought one of the little shoes with her concealed in a pocket she had made especially for it, in the trimmings of her elaborate gown. She found the bungalow empty, the trap still raised, and Miss Graham, toward whom she cast a hurried look through the window, yet in her place, listening with enthralled attention to the great tenor upon whose magnificent singing Mrs. Ocumpaugh had relied for the successful carrying out of what she and Mrs. Carew considered the most critical part of the plot. So far, then, all was well. She had but to drop the trap-door carefully to its place, replace the corner of the carpet she had pulled up, push down with her foot the two or three nails she had previously loosened, 
and she would be quite at liberty to quit the place and return to her guests. But she found that this was not as easy as she had imagined. The clogs of a terrible, almost a criminal consciousness, held back her steps. The stumble as she left the bungalow and stopped to catch her breath, as if the oppression of the room in which she had immured her darling had infected the sunny air of this glorious day, and made free breathing an impossibility. The weights on her feet were so palpable to her that she unconsciously looked down at them. This was how she came to notice the dust on her shoes. Alive to the story it told, she burst the spell which held her and made a bound to the house. Rushing to her room, she shook her skirts and changed her shoes, and thus freed from all the connecting links with that secret spot, re-entered among her guests, as beautiful and probably as wretched a woman as the world contained that day. Yet as wretched as she could be, there were depths beneath these depths. If he should ever know, if he should ever come to look at her with horrified, even alienated eyes, ah, that were the end, that would mean the river for her, the river which all so soon were to think had swallowed the little Gwendolen. Was that Miss Graham coming? Was the stir she now heard outside the first indication of the hue and cry, which would soon ring through the whole place, and her shrinking heart as well? No, no, not yet. She could still smile, must smile, and smite her two glove-covered hands together in simulated applause of notes and tones she did not even hear. And no one noted anything strange in the smile, or in that gracious bringing together of hands, which, if any one had had the impulse to touch, but no one thought of doing that. A heart may bleed drop by drop to its death in our full sight, without our expecting it, if the eye above it still beam with the natural brightness. And hers did that. She had always been called impassive. God be thanked that no warmth was expected from her, and that no one would suspect the death she was dying if she did not cry out. But the moment came when she did cry out. Miss Graham entered, told her story, and all Mrs. Ocumpaugh's pent-up agony burst its bounds in a scream, which to others seemed but the natural outburst of an alarmed mother. She fled to the bungalow, because that seemed the natural thing to do, and, never forgetting what was expected of her, cried aloud in presence of its emptiness, THE RIVER! THE RIVER! and went stumbling down the bank. The shoe was near at hand, and she drew it out as she went on. When they found her she had fainted. The excess of excitement had this natural outcome. She did not have to play a part. The humiliation of her own deed, and the terrors yet to come, were eating up her very soul. Then came the blow, the unexpected, overwhelming blow of finding that the deception planned with such care, a deception upon the success of which the whole safety of the scheme depended, was likely to fail, just for the simple reason that a dozen men could swear that the child had never crossed the track. 
She was dazed, confounded. Mrs. Carew was not by to counsel her. She had her own part in this business to play. And Mrs. Ocumpaugh, conscious of being mentally unfit for any new planning, conscious indeed of not being able to think at all, simply followed her instinct and held to the old cry in face of proof, of persuasion, of reason even, and so did the very wisest thing possible, no one expecting reason in a mother reeling under such a vital shock. But the cooler, more subtle, and less guilty Mrs. Carew had some judgment left, if her own friend had lost hers. Her own part had been well played. She had brought her nephew home without giving anyone, not even the maid she had provided herself with in New York, an opportunity to see his face, and she had passed him over, dressed in quite different clothes, to the couple in the farm wagon, who had carried him, as she supposed, safely out of reach and any possibility of discovery. You see, her calculations failed here also. She did not credit the doctor with even the little conscience he possessed, and, unconscious of his near waiting on the highway, in anxious watch, for the event concerning which he had his own secret doubts, she deluded herself into thinking that all they had to fear was a continuation of the impression that Gwendolen had not gone down to the river and been drowned. When, therefore, she had acted out her little part, received the searching party, and gone with them over the house, even to the door of the room, where she said her little nephew was resting after his journey, did they look in? Perhaps and perhaps not. It mattered little, for the bed had been arranged against this contingency, and no one but a detective bent upon ferreting out a crime would have found it empty. She asked herself how she could strengthen the situation, and cause the theory advanced by Mrs. Ocumpa to be received, notwithstanding the evidence of seeming eyewitnesses. The result was the throwing of an additional shoe into the water, as soon as it was dark enough for her to do this unseen. As she had to approach the river by her own grounds, and as she was obliged to choose a place sufficiently remote from the lights about the dock, not to incur the risk of being detected in her hazardous attempt, the shoe fell at a spot farther down the stream than searchers had yet reached, and the intense excitement I had seen myself in Mrs. Ocumpaugh's face the day I made my first visit to Homewood sprang from the agony of suspense with which she watched, after twenty-four hours of alternating expectation and disappointment. The finding of this second shoe which, with fanatic confidence, she hoped would bring all the confirmation to be desired of her oft-repeated declaration that the child would yet be found in the river. Meanwhile, to the infinite dismay of both, the matter had been placed in the hands of the police, and word sent to Mr. Ocumpaugh, not that the child was dead, but missing. This meant world-wide publicity, and the constant coming and going about Homewood, of the very men whose insight and surveillance were most to be dreaded. Mrs. Ocumpaugh sank under the terrors thus accumulating upon her, but Mrs. Carew, of different temperament and history, rose to meet them with a courage which bade fair to carry everything before it. As midnight approached, the hour agreed upon in their compact, 
she prepared to go for Gwendolen. Mrs. Ocumpaugh, who had not forgotten what was expected of her at that hour, roused as the clock struck twelve, and, uttering a loud cry, rushed from her place at the window to the lawn, calling out that she had heard the men shout aloud from the boats. Her plan was to draw everyone who chanced to be about down to the river-bank, in order to give Mrs. Carew full opportunity to go and come unseen on her dangerous errand. And she apparently succeeded in this, for, by the time she had crept back in seeming disappointment to the house, a light could be seen burning behind a pink shade in one of Mrs. Carew's upper windows, the signal agreed upon between them of the presence of Gwendolen in her new home. But small was the relief as yet. The shoe had not been found, and at any moment some intruder might force his way into Mrs. Carew's house, and, in spite of all her precautions, succeed in obtaining a view of the little Harry and recognize him as the missing child. Of these same precautions some mention must be made. The artful widow had begun by dismissing all her help, giving as an excuse her speedy departure for Europe, and the colored girl she had brought up from New York saw no difference in the child running about the house in its little velvet suit from the one who, with bound-up face and a heavy shade over his eyes, came up in the cars with her in Mrs. Carew's lap. Her duty being limited to a far-off watch on the child, to see that it came to no harm, she was the best witness possible in case of police intrusion or neighborhood gossip. As for Gwendolen herself, the novelty of the experience, and the prospect held out by a speedy departure to Papa's country, kept her amused and even hilarious. She laughed when her hair was cut short, darkened and parted. She missed but one thing, and that was her pet plaything, which she used to carry to bed with her at night. The lack of this caused some tears, a grief which was divined by Mrs. Ocumpa, who took pains to assuage it in the manner we all know. But this was after the finding of the second shoe, the event so long anticipated and so little productive. Somehow neither Mrs. Carew nor Mrs. Ocumpa had taken into consideration the fact of the child's shoes being rights and lefts, and when this attempt to second the first deception was decided on, it was thought a matter of congratulations that Gwendolen had been supplied with two pairs of the same make, and that one pair yet remained in her closet. The mate of that shown by Mrs. Ocumpa was still on the child's foot in the bungalow, but there being no difference in any of them, what was simpler than to take one of these and fling it where it would be found? Alas, the one seized upon by Mrs. Carew was for the same foot as that already shown and commented on, and thus this second attempt failed even more completely than the first, and people began to cry, a conspiracy! And a conspiracy it was, but one which might yet have succeeded, if Dr. Poole's suspicion of Mrs. Ocumpa's intentions, and my own secret knowledge of Mrs. Ocumpa's real position toward the child, could have been eliminated from the situation. But, with those two factors against them, detection had crept upon them in unknown ways, and neither Mrs. Ocumpa's frantic clinging 
to the theory she had so recklessly advanced, nor Mrs. Carew's determined effort to meet suspicion with the brave front calculated to disarm it, was of any avail. The truth would have its way, and their secret stood revealed. This was the story told me by Mrs. Ocumpaugh, not in the continuous and detailed manner I have here set down, but in disjointed sentences and wild bursts of disordered speech. When it was finished, she turned upon me, eyes full of haggard inquiry. "'Our fate is in your hands,' she falteringly declared. "'What will you do with it?' It was the hardest question which has ever been put me. For minutes I contemplated her in a silence which must have been one prolonged agony to her. I did not see my way. I did not see my duty. Then the fifty thousand dollars. At last I replied as follows. Mrs. Ocumpaugh, if you will let me advise you, as a man intensely interested in the happiness of yourself and husband, I would suggest your meeting him at quarantine and tell him the whole truth. I would rather die, she said. Yet only by doing what I suggest can you find peace in life. The consciousness that others know your secret will come between you and any satisfaction you can ever get out of your husband's continued confidence. A wrong has been done. You are the only one to right it. I cannot. I can die, but I cannot do that. And for a minute I thought she would die then and there. Dr. Poole is a fanatic. He will pursue you until he is assured that the child is in good hands. You can assure him of that now. Next month his exactions may take another direction. You can never trust a man who thinks he has a mission. Pardon my presumption. No mercenary motives prompts what I am saying now. So you intend to publish my story if I do not? I hesitated again. Such questions cannot be decided in a moment. Then, with a certain consciousness of doing right, I answered earnestly. To no one but Mr. Ocumpa do I feel called upon to disclose what really concerns no one but yourself and him. Her hands rose toward me in a gesture, which may have been an expression of gratitude or only one of simple appeal. He is not due until Saturday, I added gently. No answer from the cold lips. I do not think she could have spoken if she had tried. End of chapter 21